morning, everyone. It's good to be back after a weekend away, family. Um, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so you can head over there um, in preparation. We're going to be moving through sort of the back half of that chapter, verses 18 to 31. But before we do, I just wanted to make sure everyone knows that this month, May, is the Embrace Emphasis Month within the Evangelical Covenant Church in North America and actually all over the world. Embrace is a suite of human sexuality discipleship resources and learning experiences and conversations and videos which are in harmony with the adopted position of the Evangelical Church, the center of which is the conviction that faithfulness and heterosexual marriage celibacy and singleness, that these constitute the Christian standard. And a special emphasis of the embrace, a suite of resources, is equipping our churches to flourish in love and care for LGBTQ individuals and communities. The embrace suite of resources have, as their aim, kind of three key formative goals for every church and every Christian involved in the Evangelical Covenant Church. The first is embracing understanding, or the head. That uh, embrace is designed to grow our biblical and theological understanding of all of the issues connected to human sexuality and gender identity. The second is to grow at the level of the heart, which is embracing love which is creating safe and compassionate spaces for relational connection for everyone within the Covenant Church, but especially those in the LGBTQ community for whom um, the default posture maybe of the church that they were that grew up in or were exposed to or had contact with was animosity, um, was uh, rejection, marginalization, maybe even abuse. And lastly, to grow in embracing service, service for and with those within the LGBTQ community, making a real difference, maturing and building our capacity to make a real difference in the lives of those who have been marginalized, who have been abused, victimized, um, neglected because of an issue connected to uh, their sexuality or gender identity. I think it's important to emphasize as your pastor that I believe all three of these dimensions are actually really critical for every Christian to be growing in. All of these elements formationally in terms of the kind of people we're becoming are actually necessary to grow into a mature, healthy, Christ-like witness, Christ-like churches, I believe churches that are being formed by God's word and God's spirit will emphasize all three, um, regardless of the specific ministry areas that they're involved in. Now, if we pause and scale back from simply the issue of human sexuality and just look at these three emphases, head, heart, and hands, from just a broad uh, level, I want to sort of test this thesis that all three are necessary to be a mature and healthy 
and Jesus reflecting community of faith. So let's look at our first example. What's the result of being a church that ignores the call to grow in our biblical and theological understanding um, and lean into building empathy towards people and serving people? Um, what's the result? What, what could you anticipate being a negative consequence of living into that kind of two out of three, but ignoring the head? Any ideas? Sorry? Yeah, maybe. Maybe there's division. Maybe there's confusion. There's not a um, literal way to get on the same page. If we forfeit the Word of God, if we don't contend with it, even the passages and principles and teachings that are difficult, if we aren't in a posture where we're eager to submit to it, then really we are just going to be listening to the loudest voices in the cultural room and maybe in a well-intended way, providing care and support, but it's not grounded in God's truth. And I think whenever a church tries to operate um, ignoring or minimizing God's word, essentially you have an identity problem because at that point you, I think it's legitimate to ask the question, in what sense is your witness Christian? in any meaningful sense. So there has to be engagement with the Word of God. What about the second scenario, where you've got that engagement, you're growing in your biblical and theological understanding of all areas of life, um, how the gospel and how faith in Christ transforms every area from sexuality to finances to recreation. But we ignore the heart piece. We ignore creating safe and compassionate space for relational connection. We're a church of the head, we, we know our stuff. We're a church of action. We do stuff. We help people. But that heart piece is missing. What might be the consequence of that? How would that manifest itself in an uh, unhealthy or destructive way? Absolutely. We disobey God because we're missing something so fundamental to the heart of God and God's will for our lives, which is to actually love our neighbor. And part of that love isn't simply just serving or doing good things. It's sitting with and understanding and listening and wanting to get to know and investing in other people, giving them a space for their doubts and their confusions, the challenges that they're walking through to make sure that our Sunday morning worship time, small groups, conversations over coffee, that those are trusted spaces where even when there's jugular issues in play, our posture is one of hospitality and graciousness and care, that we're careful as a community, like literally full of care in how we interact with each other. What about the last scenario? Um, hands, we're, we're a church that grows in our understanding, we're embracing love, that uh, creating those safe spaces, being relationally attuned, emotionally intelligent, but we aren't actually serving our community. We aren't challenging ourselves to look beyond serving ourselves and serving the broader community, and especially those who have experienced, again, marginalization, victimization, abuse, neglect. What, um, in what ways does that distort and 
kind of corrupt our witness as a church. Yeah, you're going to just uh, tease out it a little bit more, Kathy? Totally, absolutely. So if we know the right things and we can even create trusted spaces where we talk and share with people, but there's no um, self-sacrificial service. There's no alignment with our community and individual and, and family lives towards um, being for others, inviting others into the mission of God. Then the obvious question becomes like, do we believe what we preach? Are we actually willing to practice it? Are we practicing it together? Right? All of these elements have to be held together in order for us to be a mature, um, Christ-like witness in the world. And I want to be a pastor that holds all of these three together in my own life. And I am not naive to the uh, myriad of challenges that that commitment places upon um, Christians today, especially in the area of human sexuality. For some, the position that I hold, which is a robust and thoughtful and careful orthodoxy, right teaching, understanding scripture's call for every person in that area, and orthopraxis, right behavior, right living, heart and, um, and hand, Holding those two together is going to make me just way, way too conservative for liberal and progressive uh, types, people with that temperament. And it's also going to put me in a precarious situation and be probably seen as pretty suspicious by those who are um, of a more conservative or fundamentalistic uh, stripe. But my aim as a pastor, my aim as a Christian should never be to appease certain groups or to please certain people. It's to contend with scripture, with a cloud of witnesses, both historically and locally in my church, submit to God's word, be sensitized and walking with the spirit of God so that I mature into right and mature and thoughtful orthodoxy, right thinking, and right practice. That my head and my heart and my hands are aligned to glorify God in all that I do and say. And so my aim is to please and honor God by teaching and living out what I believe are the biblical and orthodox convictions around human sexuality, while at the same time embracing a posture of grace and love and understanding and care towards LGBTQ individuals in my life. This is a journey that is a live one for many people. It's, it's, it's electrified, it's energized. It can uh, trigger us regardless of where we stand on some of these issues and their uh, general framing or the particularities. But I really encourage you to begin looking and exposing yourself to the resources that are being offered through our larger church family, the Embrace suite of resources. They're going to be challenging for everybody in the room, uh, helpful, they're going to spark conversation, and they will prompt us and push us to have conversations, 
to confront uh, maybe biases in our own lives, to more fully surrender to God's Word and God's Spirit. Those resources can be found at uh, this website, covchurch.org slash embrace. I also include new ones as they come out in the Summit newsletter on Fridays. So if you're interested in tracking with that, you can go to the website, you can sign up for their newsletter, or you can just connect with ours and we will kind of have that steady drip of uh, information and learning opportunities. Okay, let me take a moment and pause there, and then we'll move into uh, the text as kind of a uh, on-ramp into our time of communion this morning. God, make us a gracious, courageous people who want to love and honor you and love and bless their neighbors. And not just love and honor you in the ways that are easy, but in the ways that are costly and sacrificial. And not just love the neighbors with whom we have an affinity and a camaraderie and an alignment, but God, all the way to loving our enemies, those set against us. That we would be gospel people, that you would mature our understanding of what that means. You would build our capacity to love well, to listen well, to be full of care and empathy. You would form us by your word, through your spirit. We would be a witness to the world. We love you, God. Please help us in this task. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we are in, let's see how I'm doing for time. We are in 1 Corinthians. We've done a lot of sort of the uh, context setting. So if you're new to this series, it might be good to listen to the first two especially, but even three messages in this series. We're going to be moving right into verses 18. What Paul has been doing is kind of counterintuitive. This is a church that has a lot of issues. He's planted it five years ago. He's gotten a report. He's now sending a letter back to Corinth. And... It's a long letter because there are lots of ways in which the ch this church is missing the mark in terms of what it means to live out the Christian faith in a way that honors God and blesses, uh, allows them to receive the fullness of God and extend that fullness to other people. He starts off by offering greetings. He gives thanks for this church, which we talked about is a fairly counterintuitive move uh, considering uh, what's going on there. He confronts their, I think it's safe to say, prideful disposition toward elevating certain leaders within the church and kind of staking out their camp or their tribe and saying, I follow Paul. Oh no, I follow Apollos. Oh, I'm more of like a, I follow Jesus person. And there's different camps and he confronts that and says, no, Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. He is the center. Everyone else who's going to talk about this a little bit more in a few chapters are really just instruments that God uses. Give thanks for them, but we don't build our identity as Christians around uh, significant leaders and teachers or influencers within the Christian community, we learn to follow Jesus. And to sort of double down on um, that message and to expose something that is very it's kind of hidden in plain sight for the Corinthians. It's an idolatry. It's an, a distortion that they live with. He's now going to talk about how Christ is God's power and wisdom into a culture of Corinth that where the zeitgeist was obsessed with gaining access to power and divine wisdom. 
Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is actually the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Paul pulls from the book of Isaiah and he says, what's actually happening is something that God has been planning and orchestrating all along, which is the world has a certain um, bent to it, has a certain worldview, and the world sees itself. And by world, we're talking about those who live without God. It doesn't mean culture or creation. The world means those who are living without God in the world. And he says, those who live without God have their own wisdom. They have their own rationality and intelligence. But God says, I'm going to frustrate that. There's a way that worldly wise people, worldly intelligent people would say, well, if there is a God, this is the way God would work. And this is how, these are the kinds of people whom God would accept. These are the kinds of people on whom the favor of God would rest. And they create these uh, religious constructions. And Paul is going to say to the Corinth, you're surrounded by many of these wise, wise people, very intelligent people. We talked about social hierarchy in Corinth, uh, the elites, the intellectual and philosophical elites. Paul says, what God has done in and through Jesus has sort of like cut the legs out from under worldly wisdom. It's not that wisdom and intelligence are bad, but when they are, um, when they're not surrendered to God's spirit and God's word, they're incredibly limited. And you hear that refrain again and again in the Old Testament. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And God is constantly challenging his people who are saying, oh yeah, I can kind of see how God's working. I can kind of predict it. And all the time, people are confounded by how God actually does things. And this pattern of God destroying the wisdom of the wise and frustrating the intelligent comes up again and again and again. And Paul's going to, in scripture, and Paul's going to point back to some of those things and say, look at how foolish God has been. But it's through the foolishness that God has actually saved his people again and again. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, meaning God orchestrated it such that you can't get to God by an ascent on the wisdom ladder or the power ladder. You can't save yourself. God was pleased through the foolishness of what we preached to save those who believe. And what was it that Paul preached? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, he gets there. It takes him 15 chapters, but he summarizes it. This gospel, this is what he says. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the core bullseye. This is right in the center. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, something has happened which completely changes the potential for here and now and for life forever. We can be forgiven. We can be redeemed. We can gain access to the favor of God, not because we've earned it, but because it's been secured for us by someone else and offered as a gift. And so Paul is emphasizing, he's drawing that out here. Verse 22, he says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, 
but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and to Gentiles, right? To people who are like, if there is a God, God would be powerful and amazing. And if God were to come in human form, it would be like a Greek God, like a Zeus, and it would be a, do a dominating, powerful presence. Actually, when God came, he went all the way to the cross in abject humiliation and torture. Well, if there was a God, God would work in such a way that it would be wise and would appeal to our rationality and it would make sense. It would obviously be some kind of super, uh, hyper super intelligence. No, actually, the way God saved was doing something very uh, counter reasonable. That even while we were sinners, Christ came and died for us. And he placed himself in our place, and gave us his righteousness. The gospel is very confusing. If you assume God has to be powerful and that power is going to work out in a dominating way, or that the way God works is going to be more or less aligned with how you would do it if you are God. We see that happening all the time. I, I just thought of the, uh, you know, the Battle of Jericho. You put a thousand people in a room for a thousand years, no one is going to come up with the strategy that God comes up with in terms of how to bring down that city. It just that never happened, right? And when the instructions are given, there had to have been people there saying, we're just going to march around the city for a bunch of days and then blow horns and that's it. This is literally the dumbest plan. It's not going to work. It's not reasonable. It's not logical. And yet God says, yeah, because I don't operate within the confines of what you think are reasonable. My ways are higher than your ways. And he says, see, it's a stumbling block to people who have this conception of the way God is. But to those who are being saved, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And what Paul is saying there is he's saying, the human heart, especially I mean, it's on overdrive in a kind of a, a, a Roman Hellenistic fused culture. The human heart is bent towards self-sufficiency. Look at how great we can become as human beings. Look at the heights we can ascend to. Surely if there are gods, we can prove ourselves worthy of them through our growth in virtue, our accomplishment of great deeds, or our accumulation of wisdom. And Paul is saying that's not the way it works. And that's important for these Corinthians to hear because part of these divisions and part of these um, friction points and fracture points in the community, all the issues that are coming up, that are breeding dysfunction, are in part tied back here to this overestimation of themselves. Obviously not everybody maybe in the church, but there was a critical mass of people who saw themselves as being in an elevated spiritual state. And what they did is they said, oh, this is, God's this is evidence of God's blessing, my education, my influence, my status, my noble lineage. And the culture had these markers with which to say, yes, you are elite. And if there are gods, if there are higher powers, they would certainly pay attention to you. Notice what Paul says in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. 
not many, were of noble birth. Now, he's not saying all. There were some early Christians who were rich and influential and educated and uh, had traced their lineage back generations, but it wasn't most of them. Most of them were people that the world at the time looked at and said, like, you're losers. You're on the bottom. You're not the kind of people that if you wanted to build a movement that was going to change the world, this is not who you would draft to be part of your team. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, not from ourselves, from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is a good passage for us to come back to and even to consider what Paul, by the Spirit, invites us into. Think of what you were when you were called. Um, just for the sake of my own ego, I didn't put up a picture of my grade 9 self this morning. Uh, maybe if I grow in some maturity, I'll post it on Facebook this week. But if you were to, if you would have known me, if you would have seen me, if you would have interacted with me at grade nine, it is not false humility to say there is nothing about who I was, what kind of latent potential that would cause the creator of the universe to call me to trust in his son. It just, it does, it, it confounds my um, reason and imagination. And yet that's the story throughout Scripture. That you don't have to be elite. You don't have to be the most educated. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be super religious and hitting all the marks. You don't have to come from noble lineage. You don't have to be an influencer. Influencer. You don't have to be a person who commands status and respect by those around you. In fact, you might even be someone that is invisible to the vast majority of people. Like genuinely on the margins. But when Jesus passes by, he says, I want you to come follow me. I want you to come follow me. But you have to recognize as a Christian that no matter what is, no matter how great you think your resume is, we always have to hear Jesus' words in the Gospel of John. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Like you didn't get to be like, hey, Jesus, guess what? I'm willing to be your disciple now. Look what I bring to the table. And Jesus is like, wow, that is impressive. Not it. That is not the way it works. We are called while we were still sinners, while we were missing the mark, in a thousand ways known to us and a million ways not known to us. That's an amazing good news part of Christianity. When you come forward this morning to take these elements, it's not because you've earned the right. It's not because you've secured the privilege. It's not because you're on... You know, you're on the hot streak of six or seven Sundays in a row, or you've just managed to string together 28 days of opening up your Bible and praying. 
It allows you access to the grace of God, eternal life, security forever by God's Spirit and through His blood is Jesus. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. And that's why Paul says, so if you're going to boast about anything, it's not, look how great I am. Look what I've been able to accomplish. It's, look how great Jesus is. Look how amazing Jesus is. There's a lot here to unpack, and maybe we'll move into some of those applications next week as we move into chapter 2, because Paul's going to continue on this thread. But I want to emphasize, and I think this is important to emphasize, that Christianity is really, really strange. And part of the reason why it's so strange is it confounds the wisdom of the world. It confounds a wisdom that would say, don't you have to prove to God that you're good enough? Don't you have to earn or merit, again, secure through your own activity? It would seem strange that someone who has nothing to offer God would be invited forward. But that foolishness, that strangeness, that weirdness of Christianity is very much at the heart of the gospel. And that's part of what we celebrate. And it's part of what keeps us humble as Christians. If you struggle with pride, if you struggle with a sense of spiritual condescension over other Christians or other non-Christians, it's because you have not considered recently who you were when God called you. So as we prepare for this time of communion, let's center ourselves on Jesus. Let's prepare our hearts. If you are not a believer in Christ, if you have not surrendered your life to him, this is not a ritual that we want you to participate in. In fact, it's forbidden in Scripture for those who don't recognize the body and blood of Christ. But we still want you to take this time and reflect and maybe consider the ways in which you have, maybe too reflexively, dismissed Christianity. Because it doesn't seem sophisticated, rational, wise in your understanding. But maybe in that conception, maybe that conception is limited. And so sit with that. Maybe even bold, be bold enough to ask God to reveal himself to you if he is real. And as we do come forward this morning, let's give thanks. Let's invite God's Spirit to drive deeper into our bones this conviction that we are here because of grace. Everything we have is because of grace. And God has used this incredibly strange event in human history, Christ crucified, that looks like the antithesis of power. It looks like the antithesis of reason and rationality and wisdom. And it's actually become, through God's power and grace, the doorway to life eternal. Let's take a moment to pray.